We are, to the joy of many of you, coming to the end of another school year. And I remember well this time of year. Exams were coming, projects were due, and teachers would give us a test date or a due date for a project, and they would set a deadline. And the deadline loomed. And depending on how prepared I was, I never hesitated to be that student that would do all that I could to ask for an extension from my teacher. Just a little more time. Isn't that what they ask? I think it's interesting that even from the earliest ages, we, we think of deadlines as those things that are meant to be extended. They're meant to be negotiable. Uh, I, I will just say as an adult and as someone who does preaching most every week of my life, I assure you that the Sunday morning deadline has totally changed the way that I understand. Deadlines are not able to be extended. Sunday morning comes and we must be ready. They focus our minds, don't they? Deadlines. If we ignore them, it is to our peril, depending on what the deadline is. I do wonder if as Christians, you sometimes think in that way, an extended negotiable deadline when it comes to the promise of the return of Jesus. Let's be honest, it's been thousands of years since he was raised from the dead. Is he really going to enforce this? Is he going to make good on this promise? Uh, This deadline is different. You know that it's out there. You have no idea when it's going to happen. It's known to God. It's not known to us. I think in light of that, doesn't it seem possible that, that its certainty can start to feel a little less certain? Has the expectation or the weight of the coming of Jesus begun to diminish in your mind? If that's you, you're in good company with the readers of 2 Peter 3 this morning. 2 Peter 3, 1 to 10. In this book that we've been looking at together that urges us as Christians to live our lives in view of the end of everything. Here in these verses, Peter is concerned that we truly believe that the end is coming. That's what we're going to see in these first 10 verses of chapter 3 this morning. So look at chapter 3, 2 Peter 3, and I'm going to read the first 10 verses. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. 
But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved. With the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So here's the main point of this text. Be certain that the Lord will come. Be certain that the Lord will come on his timetable, not ours. Be certain the Lord will come on his timetable, not ours. We're going to look at this in two points this morning. First, it's two reminders. Remember the certainty of the Lord's coming. Remember the certainty of the Lord's coming. And second, remember the character of the Lord. Who will come? The certainty of the Lord's coming and the character of the Lord who will come. Let's look at the first seven verses. Remember the certainty of the Lord's coming. Verses one through seven. The certainty. You noticed in this letter that Peter is concerned who we listen to. Uh, Two weeks ago, we saw the false teachers of chapter two. They have one agenda. And then you've got Peter and the apostles and the sure prophetic word of God that has quite another. These false teachers do not believe that the Lord will come, and so they live lives in view of that belief. And the apostles and the sure word of God tells us he will come. Now, having an agenda on its face is not a bad thing. We, We all have agendas. Salesmen have agendas. Preachers have agenda. Peter has an agenda. This is, after all, look at verse 1, the second letter that he's writing. And no one writes you two letters unless they have an agenda. I think it's more than likely that he's referring to 1 Peter when he speaks of that, that first letter, not some letter we, we don't have that's, that's not in Scripture. Uh, these are Christians that Peter knows. He's familiar with them. More than that, notice that these are Christians Peter loves. Beloved. Now, that's a small word we're tempted to pass over. It says so much. It is the difference between a stranger speaking to you about truth in an impersonal context. And what they say can be true, but it can feel cold and distant. These false teachers had an agenda to use these Christians for themselves. They did not love them. Not Peter. His agenda for them has cost him his life. That word beloved is richly underpinned by pain and suffering from Peter. You know what it is if you're a parent to say things to your children that are weighty and you say it because you love them. 
You want them to listen to you because you know other voices are competing for their hearts and their minds. Now, children, I know most of your parents. They love you. Listen to them. And adults, the same goes for us. We don't want to be like little children tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, human cunning, craftiness, and deceitful schemes. Beloved, that's what we are before the Lord. That's who we are to Peter. And beloved, know that your pastors here hold out the word to you because we do love the Lord first and we love you in the Lord. Do we do that perfectly? No. Do we seek to do that faithfully and repentantly as fallen and justified men? Yes. We do aim to make our agenda the Lord's agenda, to be our agenda, to be faithful to his word, to be men who are tethered to the cross and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We love you in Christ, whether for encouragement or correction. Our agenda is tied to the cross. What's Peter's? Again, his agenda is to stir you up by way of reminder. It's been said, rightly, you are not what you think you are, but what you think you are. Right thinking is necessary for right formation in godliness. Right thinking is necessary for right living. So do you want to grow as a Christian? Your mind is necessary. Apart from knowing and understanding and believing what is true, you cannot live rightly. You must grow in knowledge. So that's why we do those foundation classes. That's why we give away books. That's why we take seriously substantive sermons. The mind matters, as does the heart. Peter is seeking to remind you, to bring to mind again. And here we are, again, doing that together. So let me ask you, over the past week, did you forget the promises of God? Did you forget that God is more for you than you can fathom in the Lord Jesus Christ this past week? Do you know that nothing changed that if you're in Christ? That you are, yes, a justified sinner. You're a saint. You're precious. You're beloved in Christ. What about moms? Do you, did you think that the failures that maybe you had with the kids or the difficulty it was to keep up somehow changed God's love for you in Christ, his plans for you, his, his promises to be for you. Nothing changed that. Do you need to be stirred up this morning by way of a reminder? You work, or if you're in ministry, were there failures, were there inadequacies, was there a lack of results that caused you to think somehow you were less precious to the Lord Jesus Christ? Be stirred up by way of reminder. If you're in Christ, your worst sin, your greatest spiritual achievement does not and it will not define you. 
for all eternity. So rather than let those thoughts just continue to cycle, bring to mind what you know to be true of God for you in Christ. What does Peter want you to bring to mind, to stir you up with? Again, verse 2, the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. So what did the holy prophets predict? Again and again, even as David read, they predicted the coming day of the Lord. They predicted this current order of things is not going to go on forever. And what does Peter mean here by the commandment of the Lord through your apostles? I think it's tied to Jesus's warning about false teachers who will come and try to deceive you about the coming day of the Lord. That's what he mentions in verse 3. You know this, scoffers will come in the last days. So if you listen to what they say about the end, it's going to affect the way you live in the present. Again, eschatology, the knowledge or study of last things, affects ethics. Peter does not think of the last days as these days way off in the future, He thinks of these days as days in which he was already living. Then, these scoffers were already following their own sinful desires and falsely teaching the church. So whether it's Hebrews 1 or here in 2 Peter, the New Testament is clear. It's consistent that in Jesus Christ, the last days have dawned. They've begun. And what will characterize these last days from the time that Jesus rose from the dead... And the time of his coming, that's the next big event, is that there will be those who deny his return. They will live however they want. I want you to imagine someone who grows up completely in a Buddhist context, culture, everything. And they show up, let's say in Germany for Christmas, first time ever. And the entire culture is celebrating Christmas. There's lights, there's Christmas markets, there's parties, there's these rituals, ceremonies, Christmas Eve, Christmas Day. Everything to them would be totally foreign. They would not understand all of a sudden these times in which they're living. They found themselves. That's how different our lives as Christians are to the rest of the world because we know and we believe we live in these last days. Our expectations are different. Our rhythms and, and, and beliefs are different. We know a deadline looms and we understand that while much of the world thinks that this coming deadline is, is laughable or silly to believe in or they don't understand how the cross of Christ affects our view of that deadline, this coming deadline changes everything for us. That's exactly what the scoffers are going after. There in verse four, where is the promise of his coming? So the substance of their scoffing is the certainty of the Lord's coming, but what's their motive? What's their agenda? So they can live however they want. They can follow their sinful desires. Eschatology affects ethics. You tell me how someone is living their life, I will tell you what they believe about the end. We learn the reason for their scoffing in verse 4. 
For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things were continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Now by the fathers, uh, they mean the, the patriarchs, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And what they would say was that everything has just gone on as normal since then. And so they were concluding God will not intervene in his world. These scoffers are skeptics. Now, I want to propose to you that it will not do to say that the skeptic only doubts and doesn't have faith. By faith, the scoffers were skeptical about Christ's return. You know, Christians are skeptics. We're skeptical. We're skeptical about any claim that Christ will not return. We believe that he will. So the skeptic is really one who doubts one proposition, but they do believe another. Maybe you're skeptical. Glad you're here. I want to press you. I want you to see that you may doubt something, but you do believe something alternatively. Uh, maybe you believe that or are skeptical that Jesus wasn't raised from the dead or that God will judge or that Christ's death on the cross can actually save and, and, and ransom sinners. Maybe you would just say that you're certain or you're not certain that certainty is possible. There's a belief in that. Are there legitimate grounds for even that position? So if, you, if you're here as a skeptic, I do want to challenge you especially about the resurrection, there's many valid reasons to believe Jesus of Nazareth, a human being, was raised from the dead. There was many eyewitnesses. There were the Romans who could not account for how in the world his body got out of that tomb. It was so well guarded. I think about history. Give me an historical factor that could explain why all of a sudden there was this transnational, trans ethnic, cultural group of people, Jews and Gentiles, all of a sudden gathering to worship a crucified Messiah. How do we explain these things? It did happen. Doesn't that mean, if it did happen, and we believe it did, that there's credibility between that event, the resurrection, and another supernatural event, the return of Jesus? Oh, consider the credibility of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. These scoffers mock the idea that Jesus would return by saying, nothing extraordinary has happened since the fathers. They thought that that proved that this deadline isn't real. And what they did was they ignored, and this is what Peter shows again, how God has acted in history. He does not want us to forget history. That's Peter's agenda. God intervened in history in the past, there in verse 5, Peter reasons from creation to the flood. So what did God do in creation? <laughs> he began history. He began the world. He acted. What did he do in the flood? He intervened to judge. Remember, he also intervened to save the godly. The world was formed out of water and through the water by the word of God. Genesis 1-2 the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. Verse 6, the same water that God separated in his act of creation, he used to deluge the world with the flood so that the ancient world perished under God's judgment. 
So by water and the word, God created the world. By water and the word, God judged the world. Now, true to his word, God will not judge, destroy the earth with the water again. But verse 7, by God's word, the present heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for a day of judgment. This time, the language of fire is used. Now, what, what is consistent here? God's intervention to create, to judge in the past gives us certainty of his intervention in the future. All of this by his word. And Peter is unembarrassingly supernatural in his view of the world. What's the point? Beloved, remember the certainty of the Lord's coming. Has his coming diminished in your mind? The Lord does not forget. He will not move his, head, his deadline. Now, if you're a Christian, this should encourage you in every way. Every injustice will be righted. Sin will be banished. Every hope you've set on that day will not be disappointed. Your life will make sense completely on that day. You're on the right path if you're living in view of the certainty of his coming. One of my Christian heroes is J.C. Ryle, and he wrote this, the world will let a man go to hell quietly and never try to stop him. The world will never let a man go to heaven quietly. The world will do all that it can to turn him back. Be certain. Remember the word of the Lord, which assures us of the certainty of the coming of the Lord. No human word can turn it back. Remember also, number two, the character of the Lord who will come. The character of the Lord who will come, verses 8 through 10. So one of the most frustrating realities, I think, of normal life is losing your keys. I do it well. I also find it very frustrating that when you lose your keys, what does someone immediately ask you? I don't know what you're saying, but I bet you're saying, where did you last have them? Such a well-intentioned question. I deeply believe the immediate answer, the obvious answer is if I knew where I last had them, I would know where my keys are. Wives, it's a great question that you ask us all the time. Keep asking it. I know it's meant to jog our minds. I will say, when I do find the keys, more often than not, I cannot believe I didn't see them. They were hiding in plain sight, but I overlooked them. What's true with keys is true with the ways of God. We can easily overlook what is true about the work and the way of God. Peter is concerned that we not confuse the patience of God with the passivity of God. God's not just sitting in heaven letting things happen in his world. He's ruling. And Peter makes clear that God does not relate to time as we do. So Peter takes Psalm chapter 90, verse 4, for a thousand years are in your sight, but as yesterday when it is past, to make this point, verse 8, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one 
day. Michael Green comments really well on this. He says, whereas Psalm 90 contrasts the eternity of God with the brevity of human life, 2 Peter contrasts the eternity of God with the impatience of human speculations. I remember when I was a child how hard Christmas Eve was for me then. I know that different cultures celebrate Christmas in, in different ways and we, we would always open presents on Christmas morning. That's what we did. And the anticipation of that was more than a young Josh Manley could possibly handle. Time always seemed to slow down on Christmas Eve. I could not wait for the next morning. It seemed like it would never come. I could not get my body to go to sleep. How different that is for me now. I do not want my kids to wake up early on Christmas Day. Depending on how much is left to do, for Jenny and me, we want the night to go on forever. My perspective on time is different. On a wholly different scale, God sees time totally different than you see time. God created time. He is not bound by time. What feels like forever to us is not so to God. God is eternal There is no beginning. There is no end. Time is under his authority. It's in his hands. He does not operate on human timetables. He is not now. He never has been in a hurry. Everything in God's world, down to the smallest detail, is happening right on schedule. And so just like you feel when you find your keys after overlooking them right where they were, so also... When you begin to doubt that God will remember, that God will come, that God will save and God will judge, you have overlooked this fact, beloved, that God does not relate to time like you and I do. He's not helpless before time. These thousands of years since Jesus was raised may seem like a long time to us, not to God. We are dependent creatures. He is independent. We are finite. He is infinite. We're here today. We're gone tomorrow. From everlasting to everlasting, he is God. He cannot go out of existence. He is self-existent. He depends on nothing. He needs nothing outside of himself. Have you started to look at time wrongly? You know, it might not even for you be the second coming. Maybe something in your life you want changed, whether it's your circumstances. Maybe you want a friend to be saved or a family member to be saved. Maybe there's something you've been praying for for a long time, even people to come to know the Lord. Do not overlook this fact, beloved, that with the Lord, a thousand years is as a day and a day as a thousand years. And so, verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. These scoffers believed that because there was a delay, there would never be a return. Time for God is not like a car. He's not actually slow or a runner who is slow. When, When we speak of slowness in that way, we're measuring it against what is normal and what is average. God is never behind time. He's doing with time what he pleases. Time never has mastery over God. 
So worrying about time, God's, uh, the time of God's seeming delay is, is not reasonable. How easy we begin to shrink God to our size. Letting this world shape our thoughts of God rather than the word. What is it for you that you've started to think God is slow in bringing about? What is that for you? Think about that in your mind right now. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. In eternity, when you're looking backwards on this age of time, you will see that God did everything well and at just the right time. Why not go ahead and trust him with that in your life now? Do not overlook this fact. God does not relate to time as we do. And God's patience does not mean he's passive. His patience has a purpose. Second part of verse 9, God is patient toward you because God desires your repentance. So the irony is that there's those who mock the Lord in his return, which is meant to lead them to repent. When we see the Lord, when we see Christ in the last day, when we're with God, the triune God in eternity, we will see clearly what we should see now, that his character is more trustworthy and praiseworthy than we can fathom. God's delaying of this deadline is deliberate. He's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish. That perishing is more than just dying. It's judgment. What does it mean that God is patient? It does not mean that God can't get done in time what he wants to do. We are patient, or must be, because we must wait. Because we can get frustrated in our purposes to accomplish God is not patient in this way. That would imply that there's a lack in God. God is patient in that his purposes are accomplished on his timetable. God did not immediately move history to judgment or even to the cross when Adam and Eve fell into sin. He's patient in accomplishing his purposes. Now, if you're like me, you will know, well, you need to grow in patience. When someone is slower to understand something or when you get behind a car that is going really slow, culture's rubbed off on me in this way, don't honk your horn or do your lights. You are impatient. And you and I must learn patience, but not God. God is patient. When we sin against him, how patient he is with us. Someone sins against us, How quickly do we become angry? And here we are in this time between the resurrection and the return of Christ. And here is God being patient toward you, not wishing any should perish. Now, this seems to me that Peter is saying that God is patient toward you, the beloved. He does not wish any of you should perish, that all of you should come to repentance. I think it's possible that Peter here is describing the full number of God's people who will come to faith. That he is patient until all of the elect come to faith in repentance. But possibly this text, and I do think other texts teach, God desires that all should come to repentance. And we know that even from Second Peter and the rest of the scriptures, not all will come to repentance. So just a teaching moment, how can God desire something 
and not bring that desire to pass. Some have said God desires uh, the fact that he desires all to come to repentance, but he desires totally unhindered free will even more. I don't agree with that. I think there's other scriptures that make plain sin has devastated the human will such that we are dead in our trespasses, Ephesians 2, or the language of Romans 3. No one is righteous. No one understands. No one is seeking God. The other option, I think the more biblical position, is that God desires all should come to repentance, but there is something he desires more, to put the fullness of his glory on display in salvation and judgment. Even as God has patiently forborne with those who have used their lives to rebel against him, God will display his glory in judgment. So I'd say to be faithful to all of scripture, we must see there is complexity in the will of God. Now, you know this in an infinitely smaller and less perfect way. So if you're a parent or if you're responsible for children, you might truly desire that they have fun, as much fun as they want. But you also desire their safety. And so you tell them they can't play in the streets where there's cars, even though you want them to have fun. Now, the complexity in our wills is wholly different than God's. When God exercises his will, he never compromises one aspect of his character. He's always acting out of the fullness of who he is as God. His will is complex. And so we submit to what he reveals even when there's mystery to us. We praise him because we see his glory in this way. God's patience isn't a reason for scoffing. It's a reason to repent. Now let me ask you, when you look at this world, and we, we, there's an unjust war happening right now, there's unjust governments, there's unjust verdicts in courts, there's employers who are unjust. Does it not astonish you God has not acted to judge? How patient. And not just with the world, but with you. How many times this past week were you bored with God? Did you not trust God with that decision when you went your own way just in the last few days? The fact that we're here this morning is proof God is patient. He's merciful. When was the last time, instead of thinking that God owes you something, you just praised him and thanked him for his patience and his mercy to you. God's character is seen in that he doesn't bring judgment immediately. Now, if you've not repented, that's the point of the patience. What keeps you from doing that? God could have judged the world immediately. He could have judged you immediately when you sinned against him. But he didn't. More than that, God has come into the world. Jesus of Nazareth, God the Son, took on flesh. He entered the world. He was outside of time and he came into this world of of time and he went to the cross and there he suffered. He took on himself the justice that is owed to every sinner on his person and God raised him. The cross speaks clearly of the patience and the love of God. Friends, the work of salvation is complete. 
Christ has accomplished it. What would keep you from repenting and believing in this son who went to the cross, who even now is patient? Come to Christ this morning if you've not done so. God is patient. But his patience has an end date. Verse 10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. This day toward which every day is moving. The day when God will intervene in history decisively to save and to judge. And notice that this day is unpredictably predictable. It's predictable. It's coming. The deadline is set. But it's also unpredictable. It comes like a thief. Thieves never tell us when they're coming. It's sudden. It's a surprise. I think these last days are are like the stoppage time in soccer. You know you're near the end. It's very near. You're playing in view of it. But you do not know when that whistle will sound. Don't listen to those who laugh at the idea of his coming. And don't listen to those who tell you they know exactly when he will come. Peter rejects both of these. He says it's unpredictably predictable. Now, Peter here is not teaching about a secret rapture. He is teaching about the end time, once for all coming of the Lord, when the entire order of this present world will be upended. When, verse 10, the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. This is it. It's certain. God will intervene. He will come. The entire order of this age will be upended and overturned. Now you're probably asking, will the world be burned up and destroyed or will it be a new world recreated or will it be renewed? I think the point of these passages is that there will be continuity and discontinuity. So there's a TV show called Extreme Home Makeover. Maybe you've seen it. What do people do? They apply to have their houses redone by expert builders and designers to totally make over their home. And the the show begins with these houses that need a lot of work. And then they describe what their dream home would look like. They go away. The home is worked on. It's transformed until the big reveal when they come back. And the difference is mind-blowing. It's still their home. It's the old home. There's continuity, but there is massive discontinuity. The beauty, the glory of the new home is striking. It is a small glimpse of what God will do with the world. Continuity and discontinuity. The present earth will be judged. Evil, evil doers will be banished. Heavenly bodies and heavens destroyed. And of great consequence, everything will be exposed laid bare. How do we think through this? Nothing is hidden from God's sight. What is false? False teachers, maybe what you think you're going to get away with, you won't. Everything will be exposed. Now, if you're a Christian, that verse should make you marvel at the cross, not be afraid of the end. God's own son was exposed on the cross. 
offered himself up to the full gaze of God, his wrath on behalf of sinners. Christ was exposed for his people. Who will stand for you on that day? Christ, or will you try to stand before this God and be exposed on your own merit? Christian, you do not have to fear this coming day. There's no condemnation for anyone who is in Christ Jesus. The worst thing about you has been exposed on the cross. Jesus bore wrath and judgment for that sin. He paid for its guilt. And now by the Spirit, you can fight against the presence of sin in your life. When God sees you on that day, He will rejoice because of the finished work of Christ applied to you. You can sing with joy no matter how you feel. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Remember the certainty of the coming of the Lord. But also remember the character of the Lord who will come patient. The Lord who will cover sinners in Christ. Who will keep his promises. His character will not change when you see him. He will not go from being the God we know in his word to a different God. This deadline is meant to move us to live in faith, not fear, to trust. This day of patience will come to an end soon. The deadline will be reached. Wonderfully on that day, God's blood-bought people will be gathered in from all across the globe and all across time And our Lord and Savior will bring us all safely home. Be certain of that and remember.